welcome to Talking the Check. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined as always by Chris Bugay. Hey, Chris. Rachel, what's going on, man? Did you just get out of a presentation? I did. I did. And I literally had the worst nightmare for a presenter happen in real time. So I presented for an organization in Canada and I have a scheduling assistant that helps me with scheduling. So like I'll CC her on things so that she plugs in my calendar because at any given time, because I do so much kind of like consultative work and like team meetings, it's like I don't have the same schedule every day or every week. Um, and so anyway, the scheduling's crazy. I have a scheduling assistant. I CC her on everything. So she's the one who kind of like plugs it in my calendar or whatever. We got the time zone wrong, Chris. We got the time zone wrong, which is a huge problem because I wasn't ready and the presentation was like happening in 10 minutes and I thought it was happening in an hour and 10 minutes. And so luckily, like I, you know, had myself together, like I did my hair and like my makeup and like whatever. But luckily I went on my computer and got my email and it was like, hey, Rachel, like, are you able to log in? And I'm like what? <laughs> and so I was like, I thought this was like Eastern standard. So anyway, like as someone who's on the West coast, who's presenting across multiple time zones, like it's always like this like fear of mine that like the time zone's wrong. And like, I didn't do the math in my head or my Google calendar didn't do the math or, you know? And so anyway, luckily it was fine. I was a little frazzled cause I had like five minutes before I went live and I was like frantically trying to find my slide deck and like make sure I had water and like do all the things I do right before I go on. But it could have been ugly. Could have been real bad. <laughs> well, okay, I feel that on multiple levels. So first of all, I just also got out of a presentation. Like literally, I was a it was a 25-minute presentation I did for an organization and all day. It's like you're it starts at 10:45. It starts at 10:45. But it doesn't start at 10:45. It starts at 1:45 because at 10:45 is Pacific, but where I am it's 1:45. So during my lunch, I'm going to do this half-hour presentation, right? And um, I had to keep it. Do I have it right? Do I have it right? Do I have it right? I know that fear. Um, and then also, like, if I get it wrong, at least I want to, because there have been times where I've gotten it wrong, but I've gotten it wrong on the right side of it, where it's been like, okay, here I am. Uh, you know, it's, we start in the presentation, like, Chris, it's, not, it's an hour from now. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So I'll go kick around for an hour. I can always find something to do for an hour. That's the good sort of, it's the other way that you're just mentioning. That's really the panic. Like, wait, I'm supposed to be there, especially if you missed it. You know what I mean? If you didn't have your phone or whatever, or you weren't on your email, you could have easily missed it, you know? So I totually understand that fear of missing out, missing a, a time zone crunch. You know what this reminds me of, Chris? Remember when we were presenting together and we showed up and we realized that we were a week early? <laughs> <laughs> we were like, okay, I'm ready to do this coaching webinar. And we were like, where is everybody? <laughs> yeah, you and I were there. <laughs> no one else was there because they were like, uh, oh, that's right. It was, it's a week from now. <laughs> now, here's something else interesting. I don't know about yours, but so this was like a half hour presentation for me. And um, I did it for free. You know, and so that is uh, always an interesting um, dilemma to to have is like, what do you do is sort of pro bono work and what do you do there you get paid? You know, we talked about this in a different context a few weeks ago when I got offered to do that. Uh, and I did do that, like, you know, consulting work with a company. But this is like presentations we do more frequently. So I'm just curious, what's your what's your take on that? What's your thoughts on that? How does that all work for you? So great question. I feel like there's a lot of different factors that go into, you know, if I'm presented with an opportunity to speak, like one, is it paid or unpaid? And how do I make the decision about what I do for free? Um, and then, you know, if it is paid, like how do I decide how much to charge? Like how, what is, what, how much am I going to get paid? Um, so, you know, when I'm thinking about free, the first thought I think is like, okay, who, who wants this or this presentation for free? Um, you know, I'm less inclined if they are an organization that's profiting from the talk. Um, you know, it, it, I say less inclined. That doesn't mean I never do it. Um, you know, there's a lot of factors. How many people are going to be in attendance? Uh, what kind of content do they need? Is it something that I've already created that can just be easily presented? Or is it something that I've created that I don't want to just like be, you know, all access all over YouTube or the internet or, you know, whatever. Um, so there's lots of different factors. But um, ultimately, I think 
you know, when we have opportunities where we can reach a, a broader audience with AAC, um, you know, the, the SLP who's super passionate about AAC and spreading that message is like, you know what, like this is a really great opportunity to, you know, make an impact on people that maybe I wouldn't be able to reach otherwise. Um, SLP Summit's a really great example of that. Um, you know, I had the opportunity to talk to, what was it, 13,000 or 15,000 uh, SLPs? Like I didn't, I wouldn't have had that opportunity and I feel really good about that because I was able to make a big impact in the way that people thought about AAC and um, think about the ripple effect that has on all the students, um, on all the caseloads of all those SLPs who watch that talk. Um, and so there's kind of a lot of different factors that go into it, but, um, you know, I'm not necessarily opposed to doing, you know, speaking events for free, but also like we can't do everything for free. Think about if I offered free presentations, Chris, or we did, we would literally have a presentation every single day, all day long for the rest of our lives. And we wouldn't be able to sustain that. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, what you just said, I mean, really, this is echoing our conversation from a few weeks ago, but I made that same decision to to present for free for this organization, one, because it was, okay, it was really a 25-minute presentation. Uh, if I can't talk for 25 minutes, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't, it doesn't take much prep. Uh, and then it turned out, it did actually take some prep because the present I had done the presentation before I had done the the slide deck before, but it needed updating. So like all last night was going through the slides and updating it. But all that's fine. It's all fine because it needed to be done anyway. But it was something you said that was really what what made the decision for me to do that was. Um, the audience. Is this an audience that I wouldn't reach otherwise? You know, uh, these were a bunch of general ed teachers that I don't often get to. Oftentimes when I do presentations, I feel like I'm in the in the wrong room, right? Like, man, we're all special ed or we get the, how it needs to be more inclusive. We get the technology that we're using. It's the general ed population that needs to redesign their instruction. So this was an opportunity to do that. So I took it, you know. Um, and so I feel like that's probably the biggest factor for me is if it's a like a, an audience that I wouldn't reach otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, there's so many different things that go into it. Um, it also, for me personally, it's like, how much else am I doing? <laughs> you know, like, is do I have bandwidth for this? Um, I think we have to be really careful um, with our time. And, you know, inevitably, we have certain times of year or times of our lives that are busier than others. And so, you know, times where I'm already kind of slammed, um, you know, I might say no to an opportunity like that um, versus other times where I'm like, OK, like, I think I have the, the bandwidth or the space to do that. Um, and also just thinking about, you know. Uh, the the other non-financial gains, if we're thinking about doing something for free, I always think, what are some other gains that I could get maybe that are indirectly fi financial, meaning I do a free event, but then everyone's like, oh my God, I love this. And so then you end up getting more paid events um, or other things like notoriety, like, you know, presenting at, you know, a, a prestigious university or, you know, there's so many different factors. Um, you know, when I get offered a presentation and I'm like, wow, I can't believe they asked me, um, you know, I'm more inclined to do it for less or to do it free of cost because I'm just super excited at the idea of presenting for, you know, a particular organization or group um, that's kind of well known in the space. So there's so many different factors that can go into it. So a couple of things there. I, I know that um, like at the end of this 25 minute presentation, someone wrote me right afterwards and was like, um, like when I say right, wrote me, they wrote me in the chat was we were kind of ending up, you know, how that's the last few minutes. We're like, oh, I see everybody. Someone wrote me in the chat, said, hey, can I contact you? Because I'd love for you to come present in our neck of the woods. And it's like, there you go. Like that 25 minutes um, may have led to a paid speaking presentation. Uh, so we'll see if that ever happens. And I really remember that early in my career. Like when I first started doing presentations, a number of people coming up to talk afterwards and saying, here's my card or can I have your card or what's your contact information? you know I sound the slides because um, I want you to come and and so many then did follow through that uh, became paid speaking engagements you know so it is sort of a balancing act you know but because it can it can lead to to other other things and then one one last thing I'll, I'll, I'll throw in there that uh, is I think is a factor is in a free presentation I have no qualms about advertising the things that I am selling you know like I'm I have a book you know uh, I'm I'm a co-author of of uh, another book you know so i feel a little more free to 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 throw my commercial in there and don't feel as awkward about it where if someone's paying me then it's like 
uh, uh, here, I wrote a book. Here you go. You want to learn more? Great. Now let's get to the content, you know, because I don't want it to feel like oh, I paid for this and now I'm getting a commercial as well. You know, it's like if I pay for Netflix, I don't want the commercials. I just want the movie. You know? Totally, totally. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, you know, it's super interesting. And, and I will say that like, you know, if because uh, sometimes, you know, clinicians who are just starting off in their like presentation journey um, will contact me and ask questions. And um, the first question I ask is like, what's your long term plan? Right. Because it's like, oh, Rachel, how much do I charge? Like, I've never done a paid speaking event. It's like, OK, well, I need to know what your intention is. Like, do you envision in your future wanting to do lots of conferences and, you know, really build a name as like, you know, someone who speaks at conferences in this specific topic area? Because if the answer is yes, I'm like, do it for less. Like, you know, you need to just get experience under your belt. And if that means doing things for free or low cost um, to get your name out there, to get exposure, um, to get more speaking events, like that's kind of what you need to do in the initial stages. Um, if you don't have that intention, but you just happen to be, you know, approached by someone, um, you know, figuring out like what it would take for in order for you to want to do that, uh, to share your experience and your expertise. Um, so I think there's lots of factors that you need to think about when you're thinking about something like that. Um, but I always like to think long term because, you know, Chris, you kind of referenced it, but also for my own, like, you know, when I started doing speaking events, like, yeah, I was doing a lot more free and low cost um, ones. And now it's like, you know, as your name grows and builds and you get more opportunities, it's like you can't say yes to everyone. Um, and so the way to say not say yes to everyone is to start charging a little bit more um, just for the things that you're doing, because inevitably it's like if everybody wants you to speak like your time is super valuable right they want to hear what you have to say um you know and it's just like we have to be selective about what we're using our time for because ultimately there's not enough time not enough hours in the day yeah 100 percent. i mean uh like i said starting my career when you're first starting out uh, i certainly cut my cut my chops is that the right expression right i um I learned how to do what I what I have uh, learned how to become a better speaker and learned how to um, uh, change presentations over the over time and so so yes you're getting some some valuable experience there at the beginning but all of that was through the freemium model which is very similar to like uh, many apps many um, uh, extensions many t technology tools is that will give you a, a light version or a free version and then there's all these premium versions that are pre more feature on top of that and that's very similar to like a speaking career is that at first you start off um, uh, with this sort of free and then you you gain confidence and people gain confidence in you and uh, and it grows you know what's so crazy Chris it just like popped into my brain um, I feel like at one point like somehow you like shared your spreadsheet that has every speaking engagement you've done Yes, bits.ly slash bougay presentations. <laughs> I'll never forget when I started scrolling, I was like, oh my God, like it's like it scrolls forever. Like I feel like you've done like thousands of presentations and I'm just like, I'm shocked at like how many you've done, but it makes perfect sense. I mean, you're an amazing speaker and you have so many years of practice under your belt. Um, so like I remember that like, whoa moment where I looked at your spreadsheet and I was like, Whoa, like my spreadsheet's so little and small compared to this. <laughs> well, I'm older. So. <laughs> yes, it's true. One day you're going to be scro free scrolling on mine too. And it's going to be like, wow, how'd she do it all? <laughs> Yeah, if you look at that spreadsheet, is uh, I, have, I have it linked over at my website, but um, it, I wanted to keep track for myself to have a history because I was losing track a number of years ago. I started keeping track of it, about what I had done and, and uh, who had paid me and who had not. So I needed like a, a tracking system for that. Um, and I find it's really helpful for, for me, let alone for anyone else who may, might want to hire me, is to look at the history there and go, I mean, I'm I'm over 500 presentations now. You know what I mean? So, um, but I count I, like I count everything as a presentation too. Like like if I'm a guest on a podcast, I put it on there. You know, um, so there's because it's a form of pre presenting. You know, I don't count presenting as just uh, an hour long presentation where you're standing in front of a room. You know what I mean? Um, it's I, I have a much wider scope there, but really, anytime I'm, that I'm working with uh, with participants, it goes on that list. And uh, I would be that would be advice I would give to anyone who's sort of starting out or who does this as well is to keep a running list so you can reflect on it and use it as an advertising tool. And in fact, I think we were talking about that 
last week during my interview with India, you know, the, uh, the that organization that, the, that they're putting together, AAC Speaker Connection, which I think you can check out at speaker.usac.org. That's what they're trying to build, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's smart to kind of track these things over time. Cause like I even I'm like, hmm, like what did I do? And I'm like, I like go through my own like tracking system and I'm like, I forget about presentations I even have. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I forgot I have like 10 corner rules to AAC implementation. Like I did that presentation once and like it's just sitting on my Google Drive somewhere. Like I could present that again and like, you know, update it. Um, and so I think it's just like really good. And it's it's actually crazy too to look back and see all that you've done. It's like anything else in our field. I feel like we're kind of so in the moment doing things day to day that we don't often take enough time to reflect back on all that we've done. And so I think it's like one of those reflective moments where you can take a second and be like, whoa, like I've done a lot of presentations with a lot of different people. And so that's really cool to see over time. Let's look at it and go, you know, oh, wow, dad, like he knew some stuff. <laughs> I mean, my dad's so cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's what they'll say. That's what I hope they say. <laughs> so speaking about free speaking engagements, people come on this podcast for free and they share information with us, right? And so this is an interview that you did, Rachel. Do you want to tell us about the who's coming up? Yes, Chris. So I actually had the pleasure of interviewing uh, a client of mine, uh, a new Garla. Um, she is a mom to a little boy named Oliver. Um, and she shared all about her experience. I have been working with the family for years. Um, this mom is amazing and, uh, the family is amazing. I do parent coaching with mom and dad. Um, and it's really remarkable to one, think about how much, uh, progress this little guy has made, um, you know, with his AAC system, he has a lot of things going on, cortical visual impairment, a diagnosis of autism. Um, you know, he's non-speaking. So we're using AAC with him. And, um, you know, this family has been such advocates for him and I've kind of witnessed it all along, um, you know, getting him a robust language system, you know, really like educating, like a new has been to the lamp training. Like she's, um, listens to the podcast religiously. She's a huge fan of our podcast, Chris. Um, she, you know, comments and, you know, makes posts on our Facebook group, um, you know, on a personal, you know, professional level of my work with her and her family. I mean, she's constantly sending resources to our team about cortical visual impairment webinars. I feel like she's like so in the know about AAC, uh, which is really fun as a, as a clinician to have a client. So, you know, in the know, um, you know, cause we're really working on, you know, just communication strategies. And, um, I really feel like it's a perfect example of how you can partner with families, um, to help them and to help them, you know, troubleshoot and brainstorm. And, um, it's been really cool for me to see how much progress both her and, uh, her husband, Jay Sung have made as communication partners. Um, it's really, really cool to just think about where they started. And now, you know, we've been doing about a year of coaching since I did an intensive with them. Um, and it's just like a perfect example of how coaching is so powerful. Um, and I just like, I'm super excited to share this interview because a new shares all about her experience. Um, and she has a lot of really great insight. So without further ado, here is my interview with Anu Garla. Hey there. If you love listening to this podcast, we would be so, so grateful for your support to keep it going. By becoming a Patreon member, you can not only help us cover the cost of this podcast, but you can get some really great bonus content as well. We post video tutorials, behind-the-scenes recordings, and bonus segments from our interviews. We would love for you to join us by going to patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. That's patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by a very special guest, Anu Garla. She is one of my clients, and we've been working together for years at this point, Anu. Um, I'm super excited to have you on the show. I'm so excited to be here. It's my favorite and probably the first podcast I really listened to. So. Oh, wow. I feel so honored. I mean, I know that you're a fan of the podcast, but I didn't know it was the first podcast that you started listening to. Um, we're really excited to have you here. So let's just start off by introducing yourself a little bit and your family and talk about the journey to getting to you and I working together. Yeah. 
So um, it's my husband and I, and we have two boys, Oliver and Storm. Oliver is seven and Storm is four. Um, Oliver is the one Rachel and I work with. Storm, Storm joins in a little bit. <laughs> yes, we're always incorporating Storm into the mix when we can. Siblings, they're great care models. <laughs> yeah. So um, Oliver uh, had some complications at birth and he was like underweight um, and in the NICU for a little bit. And they said like, he should be behind, but by the age of two, like if he's not caught up, then you should be concerned. So that was like always in my head, like by the age of two, but I had no idea like what typical development looked like before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was my first child. So, uh, yeah, I always am like, oh, that was so not normal. <laughs> and it was just yeah. really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really know why. But uh yeah, I think the ASD diagnosis was pretty complex for us um, mm-hmm. and the CBI as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the major complication was that we lived in the U.S. until he was three months, and then we started living in Denmark um, at that point. And uh, I think in the U.S., there's a lot more closer following of kids that are born early, and there's just a different um, like mindset um, in Denmark, they want kids to be free and, um, explore and, and develop the way that they would like to. Um, so yeah, the first thing that happened, he started the, uh, So it was like the daycare when he was like 11 or 12 months. Mm-hmm. And then they have people that come around and check, um, the development. And so a person came and said like, Oh, he's, you know, not responding to his name, not following directions, all of the things. Um, so like we should watch out for him, but we didn't really, we were like, okay, (laughs) we'll watch out for him. We didn't really like freak out about it or really consider it, um, that much until we started like, I don't know, just seeing other kids, his age doing some things like that like pointing and, and like knowing what things are or just walking, um, you know, following their parents and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, he, he, he was sick a lot. Um, and he, he would pull on his ears a lot. And so we thought that he was getting like ear infections and I went to the ENT or the ear doctor in Denmark, like so many times. And they were like, Oh, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I think it was like, he was almost two and he wasn't speaking. Mm -hmm. Um, he did say like, nay, 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 when he said no. Um, and he was just like a very difficult baby, really upset. Whenever he woke up from naps, he would cry a lot. Um, until I started putting him under like a weeping willow tree. Mm-hmm. And when he woke up, he would laugh and be like super happy. I think cause of the like sunlight coming through the trees and he could see like that movement. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. there was a lot of vision stuff going on that I had no idea about. Um, but yeah, around the age of two, my parents are doctors and they were like much more concerned <laughs> than I was. Uh, and in Denmark, most kids don't start speaking until they're two because the language is difficult. So nobody like kind of thought that anything was like seriously wrong, I think, or I don't know, not wrong, but just uh, different. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. So when he was two, we went to the U S for like a vacation and my mom was like, let's go to the ENT. <laughs> and I was like, on the side, uh, like, we're going to go do something fun, but then we're going to circle back to the ENT. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he clapped behind Oliver and Oliver didn't respond by looking mm-hmm. at all. And he was like, oh, you know, we should get his ears checked. And then I think the nurse there, not even the ENT was like, oh, so if this audiology report comes back normal, he's autistic. 
and you should like get an early intervention and stuff. And I was like, I don't know what any of those words mean. Yeah. <laughs> that's really overwhelming. I mean, that's like, that's really jarring. I feel it like it was to- like said in passing, like, like it wasn't the person we came to see, you know, to learn about Oliver. It was this other person. Um, and then we went to the audiologist and his hearing was fine. And then I was like, I guess he's autistic. And I was like, I don't know what that is. I looked, I was like Googling all night <laughs> and sure. took the MCAT and I was like, oh my God, like 10 out of 10, uh, you know, I guess Oliver's autistic and we need early intervention. And then I like flew back to Denmark and was like, okay, I need a diagnosis. And it was a really super long process. And mm. we got connected with this early start Denver model practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is like a really amazing method and probably the closest to like having speech therapy, like all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, we kind of were like, Oh, there's early intervention in the U S and there isn't any here. (laughs) Like we should go. So -hmm. we came back to the U S and we started doing ESDM with like one of the most like, kind of like some researchers basically from Mm -hmm. UC Davis mind Institute Mm -hmm. long story, but we ended up in LA. We met Rachel um, and Oliver still wasn't speaking um, by the time we moved here, which I think he was like three and a half or something. Mm -hmm. Um, He did some uh, like intensive Mm-hmm. And they recommended that he use like a speech, gen- a robust speech generating device and that we talked to Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> and then we met and we did an assessment and we got a device funded for him. And then I feel like it kind of like looking back on it and you now it feels like we kind of like, like I did the assessment initially, but then it wasn't, we didn't start seeing like real progress until we started working together more regularly, like with the yeah. coaching model, I feel like. Yeah, definitely. I think I didn't really understand the coaching model and maybe you weren't doing that yet. Mm-hmm. It was many years ago. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Um, and yeah, I don't know that I was, it kind of trans. I transitioned into that. Um, the coaching model is really hard because most people don't want a coaching model. <laughs> yeah. Like they don't know the impact it can have. And it's like, it kind of goes against what you think of as traditional speech therapy, right? It's like, yeah. oh no, like, why aren't you working, you know, with my child <laughs> directly? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it definitely, um, my own like kind of journey as a practitioner, I've definitely transitioned into, I mean, now I feel like I almost do exclusive coaching. Um, like if you want to work with me, that's how you're going to work with me. Cause that's how I see the most progress. Um, but yeah, I think in, in the initial stages, I don't even know that I was doing that, um, as the model to the way that I was treating at that point. <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we got the device and, um, we were like, why don't you use it Oliver? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, why aren't you using this thing? (laughs) We masked some like core words and he kind of used some sometimes, but he would just like kind of learn eat or something and say eat. And then he would learn like more and then he would say more. It was like a button to him. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, there was a lot of different providers with different ideas about how we should use it. So there was like ABA and then there was school mm-hmm. and nobody really cared about like what worked except for Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone was just like, hmm, I feel like we should go back to pets. I'm like, no, <laughs> it was definitely a challenge. I feel like in those initial stages, trying to get everybody on the same page. Cause it felt like everyone had a different opinion that was really strong and conflicting. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the blessing of the pandemic was that we were home with Oliver all the time. Um, he had a very good um, ABA therapist and team. And, and nanny basically that um, really paid attention and, and believed in him, I think, and wanted to do everything to help him. Um, and my husband was involved and Storm and it just like we, we had everyone there on the same, in the same place all the time. Mm-hmm. And then Rachel started coaching us and really talking us through like what is motivating for him like honestly what is motivating for him 
and um, and how we could use that to help them learn how to communicate and and working through the vision challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and just kind of from the clinical side, the you know speech language pathologist side. I feel like I came in knowing you, you guys, like having worked with you, it's not like we like did the assessment and then I never heard from you guys. We would do sessions every once in a while. We would check in more of like a cons- like consult basis. And it wasn't until we did our intensive, um, which was like two weeks of intense coaching with your whole team that it revealed to me like, Oh, like I see the roadblocks here. Um, you know, and I had talked with your pr- practitioners, like I, your team and I knew each other, we were collaborating and I'll put that maybe in air quotes, um, you know, cause I thought I knew what was happening, but it wasn't until I actually observed what was happening with every single communication partner in Oliver's life that I realized like, Oh, like I know what's going on here. Um, and for, you know, this specific case, it was, you know, you guys do an amazing job of you know, modeling for him and giving off that aided language input, which, you know, sometimes that's the challenge, right? Is like, I'm like, you're not modeling enough. <laughs> like we need to model all the words all the time. And I feel like you guys have always done a fantastic job of that. Um, for Oliver, I think it was stepping back and, you know, really giving him space to try to initiate communication. Cause he was just like, you know, and I think paired with the, the cortical visual impairment, you know, it, it's hard for him. It was hard for him to visually access the system and to figure out where he was on that system. Um, and so I think he was just kind of like waiting for us to kind of tell him what to say, you know, and he would very easily imitate a model, but it wasn't until we really purposely as a team came together and said, okay, like we need to just like, give him space, like obviously give him, you know, something exciting to talk about, but then give him space to actually want to initiate communication. And then once we built that foundation, I mean, it was crazy from the first week to the second week, I feel like I was like, Oh my God, like, look at him, look at him go. We were like, he was traveling to the device to initiate. Like it was like such a switch that went off. And I think it shows the power of when you get everybody on this, on the team kind of doing the same thing with the same goals in the same way. um, It really can make a huge impact really quickly. Yeah, definitely. Um, it was amazing to see that. And um, I think that before the coaching, I felt like the burden was on me. Um, and I was really trying and like trying to get everybody else on board, mm-hmm. um, which was kind of impossible. <laughs> um, and after the coaching, it was like everyone was on board. Um, and it, you know, providers change and whatnot, but we're the constant or the family. And I feel like even like a little bit of quality interaction um, that we have at the beginning or the end of the day is still making progress for Oliver. And I'm not so stressed out about getting everyone on board. I'm like, well, they'll get on board eventually or not, but that's okay. Yeah. I think that's very much a struggle that parents oftentimes face with kids with complex communication needs. Um, You know, we know the importance of a team approach and, you know, collaboration, but it doesn't always like, you know, it doesn't always unfold in, you know, the most like beautiful way. Um, Sometimes there's roadblocks to that. And I mean, I definitely, I, I can see the challenges that you had with the team and, it was like, I feel like I've seen every approach that you've given. It's like, I've seen like, let me just like outline every single thing that you could potentially do and give you all these resources. Or let me just like kind of nudge gently. <laughs> I feel like you've, you've tried every different approach with your team. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because one thing might work for someone, but it, another thing might work better. So it's really hard when you're working within teams. Like, how do we get people to do what we need them to do? Um, and I think that ultimately that's why, you know, having someone like me be able to kind of corral everyone, um, it just, one, takes the burden off of you. And two, you know, for whatever reason, I think that, um, you know, team, team members typically respond better to professionals, um, which I don't agree with it all. I feel like kids, parents know their kids best. And it's like, so sad to me that, you know, just because a parent's saying something like maybe a professional doesn't take it, um, as seriously. Um, I knew, you know, more, I feel like about AAC than like 
you know, new clinicians coming out of grad school. (laughs) I feel like you have been to the lamb training, like you've done so much. You listen to our podcast every week. Um, You know, you are such a wealth of information on the AAC front. Um, And it's just like unfortunate that, you know, all of your gems of wisdom are sometimes, you know, not uh, accepted um, just because you don't have, you know, professional status behind your name. (laughs) Yeah. I definitely feel like that um, and have felt like that. I think that also during like the early intervention period with the early start Denver model and probably other models, there's much more of a coaching approach um, uh, to like intervention with your child. So, so the professional is working with you. Whereas mm-hmm. when you shift to the school environment or to like ABA as ABA is normally practiced, it's much more of like a, they tell you what is supposed to happen and um, like what the proper order of learning things is, mm. not like what actually works for your child. Yeah. It's like, we can't have this like cookie cutter approach, right? Like, and that's what everybody wants because that's easy, right? It's like follow step one and then step two and then step three. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's not the way that kids are. Every kid's different. Every you know case you're on as a you know clinician is different. And I mean, I feel like thinking about Oliver specifically, we've had to go through so many different. We'd have to, we'd ha- we had to partner together, you know, you and I, and you know the rest of your team to figure out how we can get past some of these roadblocks because we've had a lot of roadblocks, especially with the CVI piece, like, and just to give a little bit of backstory, um, you know, he went a long time without a CVI diagnosis. And then eventually it was like, Oh, like he has cortical visual impairment. Like that could explain so many things. Um, and then even then, you know, even now he's still kind of scrolling his device, trying to find uh, where he is on his device. And that appears as if he's not, being intentional with his communication, which is like a huge roadblock, um, especially for new team members that meet Oliver. They think that he's just like, you know, stimming or, you know, just not being intentional with the words that he's selecting. Um, but if you know Oliver, you know that he'll, he'll scroll around and hit all the words. But then once he lands on like what he wants, he stops and he's like, okay, I found it finally, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I think it's just been a challenge just getting, I feel like the team to believe that like, you know, his communication is intentional and that he's able to use that device for communication in really purposeful, meaningful ways. Yeah. It's definitely. um, Yeah. I I still think that there are people that don't understand (laughs) that. um, And I think uh, the environment that we create at home is more like, he can ask, he can say whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Mm-hmm. Um, and if he says like, Akai, when I'm trying to get him to say like, let's go outside, like go, then he said Akai. And like, that's what he meant. <laughs> you know? And he says it a lot because uh, that's his favorite thing. <laughs> yeah. But it's actually Asai, but we all say Akai because that's how the device says it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've changed the actual way we name the, the fruit. <laughs> uh, but that makes sense though, because if he, if he hears on his device, a Kai, but then you say acai, like that's confusing for him. So that's a, yeah. a fun, a fun additional side note. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. I think we just like, are like, okay, you said something different. You don't want to say go right now. Um, and I'm going to accept that and be like, oh, we don't have a Kai right now, but we're going. Yeah. <laughs> and, but we actually are still going outside. <laughs> um, and in other environments, like in, I, I don't, I've, I haven't observed him in school, but I imagine in school or in like therapy settings, they're like, choose the color, like which color of this thing do you want? And he'll like just want any color because he doesn't really care about colors mm-hmm. and he'll just say anything mm-hmm. uh, and then grab like a different color or something. And so people are like, Oh, I guess he doesn't like know his colors or understand his colors. And it's like, well, he doesn't care about that right now. Totally. Um, I was just um, on another coaching call yesterday with another um, mom and she had the same issue. She was like, 
the things they're asking, like they're saying he doesn't know them, but I know that he just doesn't care. If he doesn't care, like he's just going to pick something random and like, that's it. And so I think it's a really important thing to think about, um, you know, before we decide whether or not we think a child can or cannot do something, um, we need to make sure motivation's there. It needs to literally be kind of the current that's going through everything that we do as educators. And I think that that's a huge kind of misstep that I see a lot of educators make is like, and, and I understand the challenges of the classroom. Like you are bound to academic goals and curriculum and all these things, but, you know, ultimately with an emerging communicator, like you need to be focusing on highly motivating things to talk about. And if you get creative and think a little outside the box, you can do that with most of the curriculum that you're teaching. And so I think it just takes an extra layer of thought and planning and intention to do that. Um, and it also just takes really, I think, looking and seeing, you know, all the ways that a child is either showing us that they really like something or showing us that they're, you know, either not, they don't like it or they're like, whatever, I don't care. I could care less either way of what's happening, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, lately we've been blessed with like a really good teacher um, who cares about uh, like teaching Oliver as much as she can. And yes. um, that's been great. <laughs> yeah. So I wouldn't say that it's all like, but I just feel like um, as a parent, it's important to just depend on yourself and in your husband and in your family to provide whatever you can in terms of like natural communication mm -hmm. to your child, because that's really the environment where they are allowed to naturally communicate. Yeah. I think that like, I always think about the fact that home should be a safe place. Like it shouldn't be a place where I feel like I need to like perform or do all this work. And so it's like, especially when we're thinking about, you know, home, um, communication opportunities. I feel like it needs to be, you know, we have to be really cognizant about getting into this dynamic where we're just like, you know, putting so many demands on kids to communicate. Um, you know, I think that like you said, and referenced in the beginning, if you have short, but high quality interactions and connections with him, um, he's still making progress. And I think that's the key is that doesn't have to be, you know, three hours of intense drill and kill, um, you know, just having interactions, you know, that come up throughout the day, um, whether or not they're, you know, long or short, um, just having that quality there is really important. And I think that can make everyone happier too, because it's like, I had just had a nice, you know, time reading that story with him or, um, you know, cooking with him or, you know, whatever it is that you decide to do. Um, I think it's like quality over quantity in a lot of ways, especially in the home environment. Yeah. What, what has been a, a, a game changer for you anew? So we have a lot of, you know, professionals who listen to this podcast and I think it's helpful to hear a parent perspective. Um, we also have a lot of parents who listen to this podcast like you. <laughs> so, um, you know, some parents might be starting off their AAC journey with their, you know, child and, um, you know, you've been through a lot the last, you know, few years trying to get all over the device and then learning about the cortical visual impairment and, you know, trying to get his team on board and all the things that you've gone through. Um, what has been the game changer for you um, that's really made the biggest impact? Mm, well, Rachel Maydell. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Anil. Coaching. Um, I think the biggest thing was... Um, I mean, everything helps, you know, but for Oliver, when he started medication, I think he was able to focus a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, and he had done this intensive at UCLA. It's called like Kids Connect now, mm -hmm. um, where he started the meds. And they also had very high expectations for him. Um, and they were just like a very connected team that was. Um, really focused on what worked for him. Mm -hmm. So I don't think they were perfect at all, but um, I think those two things really, they happened right before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And then we had the coaching and it was just like, everything was like moving together. I think that program also had a lot of parent involvement. So my husband was able to be more involved in a structured way. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And he was used to doing that. Um, whereas before he had been involved in early intervention a lot, and then he just got kind of consumed by work. Um, and he was able to like create some sort of space for him to be a part of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that really helped Oliver because we're like the main people in his life. Um, yeah. So I guess it's, accepting that your child might need medication and, and seeking it out and giving it a try and trying multiple things. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that journey has been very difficult for us and probably for a lot of other people, Mm -hmm. um, especially for like a young child. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other thing is like having, uh, everybody in your family involved with it as much as possible. Um, and kind of troubleshooting everything. I think, I also had this like idea about Oliver that he was interested in doing these specific things like playing with, well, he does like playing with magnet tiles, but maybe like puzzles or other things that I think they're like kind of learned things that he's into from various therapies, Mm -hmm. but like the real things that really drive him are not those things. They're like, food things but also like sensory needs like wanting to swing and jump and run and swim and stuff and Mm -hmm. and that's where the language has come it's not like these things that you want him to be into (laughs) or something totally um so just like really observing your child um from like a distance and seeing where they what drives them is kind of really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with that. And I think that, I mean, that's something that I really believe in. And like when I'm whenever I'm on a team, it's like the first thing I figure out, (laughs) I'm like, okay, what's really motivating this kid? Not like what I want them to be motivated by, not by like what's happening in the classroom that I want them to try to communicate about. Um, what's actually motivating a child to, you know, get excited to talk with us um, and communicate. I'm curious, Anu, um, are there any strategies that you and I work together on that you feel like made a big impact? Because um, we've, we've worked on a lot. We've gone through a lot of different strategies, uh, you know, over the course of time that we've worked together. I'm curious if anything stands out. Um, well, I'm not sure what you mean by that, but uh, there are a lot of things we did because of Oliver's vision impairment um, Mm -hmm. that we found that works for him, like Mm -hmm. putting actual pictures into his device of things like his water bottle for water. And um, a Kai was like the color purple Mm -hmm. that helped him. Um, And then the other thing was like limiting the field. So we would, do a lot of practice with just one icon on Mm -hmm. the device. It was the full motor plan, but it Mm -hmm. was one icon. And then we would expand it into something. It wasn't like the way they teach PECs and the way that the school does is like a preferred and a (laughs) non-preferred. But Oliver didn't have any non-preferreds. He'd be like, oh, what's that? Oh, I'll put it in my mouth. And I think part of that was his vision. He was like, oh, I want to like see what this thing is in my mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was like having a preferred and another preferred so that mm-hmm. when he said something, it meant something important to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think choosing to do it like that instead of this, the typical way, which is like preferred and non-preferred. Um, and then with the coaching, it helped to have like homework, like not something huge, but just like something really specific. Like we're going to work on like pool because we're going to the pool every day, like these weeks. And like, then we did it. And then he, he actually like said swim by himself. I think he had a book that had swim in it. So we like modeled swim a lot and Mm -hmm. he actually started using swim instead of pool which was pretty cool. Like sometimes he finds things on his own and he's really listening. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think keeping talking to him. Also, I think a lot of with autistic kids, you try to simplify language um, so that they can like process it better and also respond 
Mm-hmm. Um, but with Oliver, I've started using just like a lot more language um, because I think he can really understand and he's really listening. Mm-hmm. And with the visual impairment, he's like depending on what he hears a lot more than an, a kid without that. Um, so I, I, yeah, those aren't like strategies. They're very specific to Oliver, but yeah. No, I mean, that's helpful. Um, that answered my question. Um, I didn't know if there was anything about the work that you and I have done together that stood out like, oh my gosh, that made a huge difference. I do think that limiting the field size and all the considerations we've taken with the cortical visual impairment, um, have been really huge for him. Um, also, you know, I think that putting, uh, giving him space to communicate and let him wait time and processing time, um, I think has been a really big one that I've seen across the board with the team that's made a really big impact. Um, you know, because I think that ultimately, especially because he's still kind of trying to figure out where he is on the device from a visual processing standpoint. Um, I think that it, he, he needs extra time to kind of like figure out what he wants to say and, you know, where that is on the system. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that that's been huge for kind of the team in general. Um, I'm curious if you could give any advice to either parents or professionals about AAC in general, or just your experience, like, what would you say? Uh, (laughs) my advice for parents is to trust yourself. I think, um, a lot of, I've had a hard time doing that because there's a lot of professionals telling you things and they're the authority. So you kind of forget that, you know, the most (laughs) about your child. Um, that's one thing. And the other thing is, Um, a lot of parents come up to me and ask me questions, like once they know Oliver's autistic or he uses a speech generating device. Um, yeah. And I feel like that's kind of what they need to hear, (laughs) um, because they're totally on and they understand their kid the most for like professionals, I would say, trust the parents. (laughs) (laughs) Full circle. Um, and also have high expectations. And if you're not meeting your goals, be honest about it and, and change your strategy, like either change your goal to something that the child is actually motivated by or teach in a different way. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a big one is that I see a lot of the work that I do with school teams sometimes, and, you know, other practitioners is it feels like you know, they have all these skills, but only with support. So it's like when we, we strip away all the support, like what's left, I always kind of say that. And sometimes there's not a lot, right? Cause we realize how much prompting and modeling and all these things we're doing, which isn't, you know, necessarily a bad thing, but if we don't ever generalize that to, you know, independent autonomous communication, then, you know, have we really done our job? Um, and if that's not happening, like it's my job as a practitioner to figure out how to make that happen. Um, and that's where I think sometimes, you know, we get into trouble because it's like, whoa, like he says all these things, he's building sentences. And then I observe it and I'm like, yes, but only when you model it or you're telling him what to say, (laughs) you know, a very different skill than like, I have an idea in my head and I'm going to communicate it with you. Um, and so I think that's really important too. Um, but I think think that's huge. Like I, it took me a while to like actually see that. Yeah. Well, and also I think it takes, a you know, putting your ego aside to say like, you're right, you're right. Like they're not meeting their goals. Um, and it also takes writing goals that support independent communication. Oftentimes I'll read IEPs and I'll see, you know, you know, with verbal, visual, you know, prompts and all of these supports, which again is not, I'm not saying that that's, you know, not a good thing. We need to scaffold the learning for, you know, our kids with complex communication needs so that they can make progress. But my end goal is independent. <laughs> um, like the benchmarks should be like with all the scaffolded support, but you know, by the end of the goal, like my goal for kids is to be independent communicators. Um, and I think we need to kind of make sure that we're addressing goals in the, in that way. Um, and yeah, I mean, I also just like, I full heartedly believe that parents know their kids best and we need to really support, um, you know, whatever it is that parents feel like 
is the right decision. And of course, educate and empower. And, you know, we have tons of experience with, you know, kids with communication difficulties. Um, but I think that partnering with parents is a better strategy long-term than, you know, being like, I'm the professional and like, I'm, I know what's best. Right. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> okay. So are there any fun like stories? I was trying to think a new, like, do I have any fun stories that we can, that I can share about Oliver? Um, I'm curious if you have any like interesting or funny stories to share. I really don't. <laughs> I really don't. I like, I feel like they come up all the time when we're working together. What is a fun story? I don't know. I'm trying to think of like something he's said or done. That's been like, Oh my gosh. Um, I know for a fact that, that we have them somewhere in our brains, but we just don't know them right now. Um, yeah. How long have we been working together? So I guess he, since he was three and a half, so four years, the email when he was like three and a half and then it took like a year to get the device. (laughs) Oh my God. I know. Uh, (laughs) I wrote the funding report for that and they kept denying it. (laughs) Yeah. We worked like every now and then you were very busy. You were a difficult person to get meetings with. And then, um, yeah, it was, it didn't become regular until we did the coaching and then afterwards. And it's, well, and that's when I kind of realized like, wow, like I can do all this virtually, you know? And like, I started doing it before the pandemic. So I was doing coaching before that virtually. But then it was like the pandemic really allowed everyone to just understand how like virtual works. Um, so it was like, before I was like, you have to download a program called zoom and like, you're going to have to log in. And, <laughs> and now it's just like more commonplace. Um, but yeah, the, the intensives have been a game changer. Like all of my families that I've done intensives with, I'm shocked almost. I like the progress and the momentum that it builds. Um, and it's really, you know, the grand scheme of things is not that much. I mean, it's two weeks and, you know, it's a couple sessions a day. So it's not like it's nothing, but I feel like kind of front loading all of that work just like gets everybody on the same page at the same time. And like, you can see a lot of progress happen pretty quickly. Um, and so I've been really happy with that in my practice with the families that I've done the intensive with. Um, and the ongoing support is also really great. And I feel like I've been able to help you guys at home and your team. And it's been just like, awesome to see all the progress that he's made. Yeah. Um, now we're on a literacy kick. So we're like teaching Oliver how to read and how to write, which has been fun. Uh, we've been book studying the comprehensive literacy for all, which if you guys are listening and you don't know what that book is, how, how do you not know what that book is, but you should go get it right now. Uh, Karen Erickson and David Copenhaver, uh, we'll link to it in the show notes for you guys. Um, but we've been, uh, hitting the literacy hard this summer. <laughs> Yeah, I um I think that what you said before about um what Oliver can do independently is really important. Um I think even beyond literacy and communication, just like getting dressed, like giving him time for all of those things is really important. Um yeah. Yeah, and I think that if we don't give kids the space then they just become accustomed and conditioned to wait for us. Right. Like I'll wait for mom to like do all these things and I'll just kind of hang back. And so we need to push kids out of their comfort zone because that's where learning happens. It's not where I'm just like, "Mm, I'm just doing the same thing I always do. Um, It's also like, if we push too hard, then, you know, we can cause frustration. Um, So it's like that sweet spot uh, where we can really make an impact with kids. Yeah. Yeah. I think in the beginning of the coaching, that was like the most heartbreaking thing for me to realize, like he is waiting for me to give him permission to say a Kai, basically like he wouldn't push a Kai unless I was like actually holding it or touching it. Like it would be on the table and he wouldn't say it. It was crazy. I was shocked. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah. Sorry. I know. We're no, 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 no. You're totally, you're totally fine. Uh, the, liter- the literacy stuff has been cool. I've been, I never, I was always focused on Oliver communicating and I never thought about literacy as being part of that or um, a focus at all. Um, but now that 
I mean, that's like what you do with little kids all the time. You're teaching them about letters and books and sounds and stuff. And um, yeah, now that we're starting to do it, I can see that he's really interested in it and it could open up a whole world for him. So absolutely. I'm training your whole team on literacy too. <laughs> that's the goal for this year. Um, getting everybody on the same page, figuring out who's doing what with your beautiful spreadsheets. I have to share a new is amazing with spreadsheets. Uh, we have the like most massive spreadsheet <laughs> for Oliver that has like all of our coaching videos. We use loom for that. And so many resources about cortical visual impairment, like a whole salient features tab, all about like the words that we can use as salient features. when we're describing things for Oliver. I mean, it's super comprehensive and a new, uh, I don't know that I know anybody else that works so hard to, you know, provide resources for their team. Um, you know, you're constantly sharing podcast episodes and articles and trainings and all these things to support your team. Um, and I know for sure, I definitely appreciate it. Um, just because sometimes you share things like I haven't even seen this, like, I don't even know what this is. So <laughs> thank you for opening my eyes. <laughs> um, and it's just, it really is helpful to have, you know, a parent who's so dedicated and, uh, committed to, you know, helping her son, um, continue to progress. And, um, I think that it starts with just like, you know, those relationships that you build with the people that are working with your child. Um, and I feel like you've done a really great job of building strong relationships. Thanks. Yeah. I, I think I've learned a lot from you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do all day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we always talk about it. I'm like, I get people to do what I want all day long somehow <laughs> in a really nice, sweet way. <laughs> it's my, yeah. my secret talent. I think getting upset and crying about it was my prior um, strategy. <laughs> and my current strategy is asking a lot of questions and listening to the answers. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a coaching strategy, right? Yeah, and trying not to argue uh, or, or even to direct, which is like super hard for me, but something in between those things. Yeah, because if you ask a lot of questions, then you get, to, you get to the bottom of what the, you know, either belief is um, or the perception is or where someone's coming from. And then you're able to figure out how it's like, oh, well, they don't believe you can do it. So that changes the way that I interact with someone versus, oh, they don't know how to do it. Uh, they feel overwhelmed. Right. So like getting to the bottom of what the what the the person, whoever it is that you're working with, um, what the problem is, like what their biggest challenge is, um, just opens up a whole like, you know, opening for just more connection and collaboration um, and understanding and people feel heard, right? If you ask questions, like it feels like, wow, they really care about like what I think. Um, and that is huge in building that rapport and that trust for, you know, a really strong team. Yeah. Oh, were you going to say something? No, I just, um, so I did want to talk about how I'm going to, do an inter internet explosion of the resources <laughs> that I've made for Oliver mm -hmm. um, and maybe make them a little bit better or not have copyrighted images in them. <laughs> so, and like on Teachers Pay Teachers and YouTube and hopefully on like Kindle Reader because then um, you can't. Like I've found there's like PowerPoint presentations we've been using as books for Oliver, but for him to like uh, independently access it means that he can access the editing features of it and just like move the pictures and text around and then it doesn't work anymore. So if it's on Kindle, it'll be more like a book he's reading instead of a book that he's playing with. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, so I'm going to kind of, give you a shout out Anu, because this, the resources that she creates, um, are amazing. Um, so they're all, you know, helpful for kids with cortical visual impairment. So they have high contrast, um, images and backgrounds, um, they're to support literacy, which is really great. Um, and they're really interactive. Um, you know, of course you started making them for Oliver and I was like, you have to sell these or like, I don't know, share these somehow because they're so useful. Um, we know it's really hard to find resources that are suitable for children with cortical visual impairment. And I feel like these 
you know, books that you've created have been, you know, not only wonderful and engaging for Oliver and he likes them, um, but also they're very strategic based in, you know, supporting literacy for kids. Um, and so I'm super excited whenever you launch, like I'm, I'm excited. I'm going to, you know, shout you out and we'll definitely link to all of those um, resources and uh, a new, a new, you can follow a new on all the hopefully channels to see what she's created. Um, but I'm really excited because I feel like they're really well done and I'm excited for you to share them with the world. Cool. Yeah. I'm excited. I hope it'll help other kids. It'll be really exciting if it does. Oh, I definitely think it's going to help other kids. I've even like, I'm like, can you share this with me? I have another kid with CBI that <laughs> I want to teach the letter R to. <laughs> oh, so definitely. Um, okay. I knew we have one question. I have one question. Chris doesn't always ask this, although sometimes he does. Uh, I have one question that I ask uh, all of the people who come on the podcast. And that is, if you had a billboard that every SLP could read, what would you want it to say? Um... I have a lot of things that I wanted to say. Everyone's like, well, I wanted to say 10 things. <laughs> um, but I did write down something, so I'm going to say that. Okay. Um, if your student is not learning what you are teaching, change the way you are teaching or what you are teaching. I think that's perfect. I think that that speaks to kind of the... I always think of it as like the burden is on us as educators and adults, right? If I am not connecting the dots for a child, it's not the child. I think it's so easy to be like, oh, they're not interested. Oh, like they're not attentive. Oh, like, you know, and putting it back on the child instead of putting it on me and saying, okay, like the way I'm teaching isn't working. So I need to pivot. I need to try something different, um, you know, and work kind of exhaustively to figure out what is going to work. Um, so I love that. I think that's wonderful. Cool. So Anu, for people who are listening and are like, oh my gosh, she's a wealth of resources. Um, I want to connect with her. What is the best way for people to get in touch with you? Um, I, I have an email and I'm launching on like YouTube and Facebook and all those other things. Um, it's called Olifantabulous Stormalicious. It'll be in the show notes. <laughs> it's um, a long one. Yeah. People are going to need it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, Oliver and Storm's names in a very long, long hand. <laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. Okay. So we'll definitely include all of the links in the show notes for you guys um, who are interested in checking out all the wonderful things that I'm excited to check out too, Anu. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate your perspective. We've been talking about this for years. I feel like at this point, I'm like, oh, like you should come on the podcast. Um, so I'm, <laughs> I'm happy that we finally did it. Um, I feel like your story is um, really wonderful to share and also really meaningful to me personally, because I've been working with you guys for so long and I've seen all of the, you know, kind of struggles and the triumphs and the behind the scenes of everything. Um, and like I said before, I feel like you just you do such a wonderful job of, you know, advocating for Oliver and, um, you know, educating the team and empowering them um, to keep moving forward. And um, I definitely acknowledge all that you do and am so impressed with all that you do. Um, so just know, like I'm, you, you're a fan of the podcast. I'm a fan of you. Anu. <laughs> I think that you just do such a great job. Um, and are so dedicated to continuing to help Oliver make progress. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Um, I hope that everybody loves this podcast episode. They will. They <laughs> will. Don't you worry. Uh, okay. For Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Mado, joined by Anu Garla. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next week.